So we're in this series called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. The title we borrowed from a book by the late Jesus scholar Marcus Borg. And we've been just exploring this Jesus that many of us maybe were never invited to meet, right? Because we, we were invited to meet other sorts of Jesuses, uh, different lenses, different perspectives on Jesus. And in this series, I've really, last week we talked about how Jesus thought about God, maybe how Jesus saw God, his vision of God. But we've really been looking historically, and we're gonna do some of that again this week. Um, the, the general flow of our sermons in this series has been, I'm gonna give you some, just some historical Bible stuff on the front end that's gonna be really kind of head focused, like this is just some information. Um, and then on the back end of the sermon, when we wrap up, hopefully we'll move from the head to the heart and we'll ask, what, is, what does this mean for us? How does this affect us at a heart level. And so, so far we've done a brief sketch of the historical Jesus, of who he was, what he might've been up to and how he understood God's character. And today I wanna shift to the thing he talked about all the time. Uh, He talked about the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew's gospel, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. That's not a different thing. Um, It is a way of not using the word God uh, out of of reverence, right? So instead of saying kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven. It's like if you're talking about something, the president or the president's administration, sometimes the news will say, well, this came out of Washington, right? And we know that Washington as a city did not speak, um, but it's a reference to where the, the sort of the authority exists. And so that's just same thing, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. I'm gonna use kingdom in this sermon just because it's kind of a familiar language, but know that lots of people are subbing that word out for something that makes more sense in the modern world. So kingdom of God, sort of to reflect a relational nature. Um, Commonwealth of God is something people are using. I think all of those are great. So let's begin with this. Jesus' central message, the thing he talked about, the thing his stories were about, the thing his, his healings were about, the thing his exorcisms were, everything Jesus was doing was about this thing called the kingdom of God. And when the Jesus story begins in the earliest gospel we have, and that would be the gospel of Mark. Um, I know it's sometimes a little confusing because Matthew is the first one in the New Testament when you like open a New Testament, but Mark, scholars believe, was the earliest gospel written in the, around the year 70, so you know, some 40 years after the life of Jesus. When we meet Jesus, we do not meet him um, as a tiny baby. Um, we do not meet him as the gospel of John does um, in a, gal- a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away which seems to be John's approach to the whole thing. We meet Jesus as a grown-up, as an adult, and we meet him going out into the desert to experience a ritual called baptism that this guy John the Baptizer was doing. John was leading a kingdom movement as well, and John believed that God was going to come at any moment and fix things, that God was going to come at any moment. If, If we purify ourselves and if we begin to live in the right ways, God will come and rescue us from the Romans and God will establish our our safety and our prosperity in this land. And, And so John was inviting people, come to the Jordan River, which was a highly symbolic place for them. It's where they crossed into the the promised land. Um, come to the Jordan River, let's reenact the journey into the land and let's be cleansed and let's wait for God to do the thing God's going to do because God's going to do the thing. And Jesus seems to have identified with this movement and he comes and he's baptized. And as he's baptized, the heavens open and the spirit descends on him like a dove and he sort of gets his calling. You are my son, the beloved with you. In you, I find great happiness. And then then the next thing we get about Jesus is that he goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he's tempted in the wilderness. But notice where the first words we get from Jesus, the first words Mark 
has Jesus speak in his gospel or in verse 14 of chapter one. And it happens at a curious time. Notice this text. Now, after John was arrested, so John the baptizer, the guy who's been out in the wilderness proclaiming this message, he has been arrested. And he got arrested because he started critiquing um, the leader, a guy named Herod. And what he was critiquing Herod for was Herod had divorced his wife and then married his brother's wife, which, which made him run afoul of the law. By the way, can we just do a side fun fact? When Jesus is asked about divorce in the New Testament, uh, and his answer, when, when he responds to it, people don't realize this. People have used that text to beat up on people for generations. The question of divorce when it's asked to Jesus is not about relationship, it's a pol- political question. And it's, it's essentially, what do you think about what Herod did? Right? It's, it's not just this question of morality, it's a very specific question. Hey, and, and they're asking it to try to trip, trip him up a bit. So John's arrested, and Jesus then comes to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. John's arrested, and it's like for Jesus, it's, a, it's like, okay, John's arrested, and now I'm going to launch my movement. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus' movement makes several innovations. Jesus does not have the same message as John. Jesus isn't proclaiming the same thing. John's message would be like this. Get ready, God is coming to save us. That'd be John's message. Jesus' message would be this. While you're waiting for God to come save us, God has been waiting for us. Right? John's message is like, wait, wait, wait. And Jesus' message is, no, 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 it's here, it's now, it's among us, it's available to us. It's not something out there in the future that we have to wait for it to arrive. It is here for the bringing, it is here for the opening, it is here for the experiencing. And Jesus calls this announcement, this thing we're invited to believe, he calls it good news. So we get the word gospel. How many of you are really familiar with that word? It's not just a book in the New Testament, right? It's this idea. And here's what a lot of people don't know. Gospel, good news, was actually a term adopted by the Roman Empire, and it's the word euangelion, or euangelia, plural in Greek. It's where we get the word evangelical, which used to mean good news, maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe not. But it's this idea of a good message. And do you know when Romans would use it? They would use it about the emperor, Whenever the emperor brought peace or won a victory, whenever the emperor did something great, they would make a proclamation, an announcement of euangelion. They would make an announcement of good news. This is good news for everybody. The emperor brought us peace and stability. The emperor has brought us prosperity. The emperor has defeated our enemies. This is really good news. It wasn't something, it wasn't a set of facts to be believed in. It was an announcement that was true for you. And what happens is these early Jesus followers and perhaps even Jesus himself began taking certain language that belonged to the empire and was used about Caesar. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Caesar was Lord, and yet they're talking about Jesus as Lord. Caesar was Savior, and yet they start talking about Jesus as Savior. They're they're taking language that belongs to the empire and they're placing it onto Jesus as a way of saying, we actually think there's a better way to do this. I think it's really important to say that, yes, they're co-opting language of the empire and they're transforming it to talk about an alternative vision of the world. But Jesus' vision of the kingdom was different. 
Jesus' vision of the the kingdom was not a Christianized version of the empire. The kingdom was not for Jesus, a Christianized version of the empire. It wasn't saying, look, the empire is corrupt and dehumanizing. And so we want to take it over and tweak it a little bit. We want to change it. The systems work fine. We just want it to be a little nicer and we want to be a little kinder about it. And we want it to be a Christian empire. By the way, Jesus, if you just said Christian to Jesus, he'd be like, "What what is a Christian? And there are lots of people who want to do that within our own country, right? We want to make America a Christian nation. We want to Christianize the country. That's what a lot of Christian nationalists want to do. We want, we want to make this country Christian again, as if it ever has been or ever could be. Jesus wasn't suggesting that. He's not saying, I, I want a version of empire with me at the top, same rules. I just want to be in charge. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, empire is corrupt and dehumanizing. We need a new human and humane way of ordering the world. It's different. Empires are set up to be impersonal and dehumanizing. And Christian churches, sadly, we have adopt that, adopted that same methodology in how we, how we govern our communities. And that's not what I think Jesus had in mind. Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God also was not about evacuation. It wasn't about leaving the world or going to heaven when we die. How how many of you in this room online, how many of you, the bulk of your Christian experience maybe at one point was really about just getting ready to leave this life, whether it was when Jesus came back or when you died? Anybody have that? John Dominic Crossan has this great line where he says, you know, earth Heaven's in great shape. Earth is where the problems are. (laughs) Why would Jesus be talking about evacuating us to somewhere else? It's often, I've heard people say, and I've said, like, you would meet, Jesus would be coming down as we were going up because this is where the action is. Jesus wasn't talking about leaving this world and abandoning this world. He wasn't talking about not caring about this world, whether talking about how the care of creation and how we steward the world. Uh, He's not talking about abandoning that. He's not talking about, well, you know what? There are all these corrupt and unjust systems and, and good news is in heaven, we won't have to worry about that anymore. But what about the people living in hell right now who are being abused and victimized by unjust systems that then Christians for 2,000 years sit back and say, there's really nothing we can do. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Well, unless you plan to go to Mars, this world is your home. And what happens on this world matters. And so I think Jesus is not about teaching us a vision of God's kingdom that is about evacuation, God's kingdom Sunday. I think he's got a religious, it's a religious vision because it's inspired by his understanding of God, but it's also a political and economic vision because it's about how we order the world. But again, it's not about implementing some sort of theocracy where um, our religion tells everybody else's religion what to do. It's about how, how, do we, how do we divide up the world? How has the power and resources of the world, how have they been equitably distributed or have they not been? What does it look like to take those sorts of things seriously? So for Jesus, what would the kingdom have been like? There's this story in Luke chapter four where Jesus goes to his hometown to give a sermon. Um, And it it goes really well at the beginning until it doesn't. I kind of imagine that's what it'd be like giving a sermon in my hometown right about now. Um, And and 
when he does it, notice Luke 4, verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of, so, so he's given a scroll from the prophet. He's reading on the Sabbath, and he finds this, this text. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what's really interesting is he cuts off the reading there because the next line of the text is about God's vengeance. And he cuts the reading off there and just announces the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls the scroll back up and he gives it back to the attendant. He sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue are fixed on him. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't say someday in heaven, the scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. He says today, and he's talking about the movement he's leading. He's talking about how his movement, they are doing these things. They are announcing good news to the poor again and again and again. They are seeking to rescue and liberate those who are oppressed, announcing God's favor, that God is actually with us, for us, and on our side, that God actually loves those who, not just the powerful, as it had always been thought, but God loved those who were victims of the powerful, and that God longed for their liberation and wholeness. So if we think about what the kingdom was like for Jesus, I would just give a few things. I would say first, the kingdom was here and now for Jesus. The time has come. Why wait? The time has come. It's here and it's now. It's available and accessible. The kingdom is near. It's drawn near to us. It's open, it's available. The kingdom for Jesus is inclusive and expansive. When you think about the people Jesus gathered around him, it was an odd bunch of folks. The disciples' lists in the gospels don't line up, right? But when you read the occupations of the folks who make up that list, you have fishermen, people who go out every day and fish for their livelihood. And you had tax collectors, the very folks who would meet them on the beach and start taking their cut. Those two probably didn't get along very well. And then you would have a zealot, somebody who believed maybe the way to get around this Roman problem is to just start killing Romans, who also would have had a problem with a tax collector. I mean, if you're you're Jesus and you're trying to pick pick a team to do this kingdom thing, do you pick those folks? Is that where you go? But he doesn't stop there. He also invites women, which would have been unheard of, in the ancient world. He, he invites those who have conditions that have made them um, excluded from society, excluded from community, and he embraces them and brings them close. He puts together this inclusive and expansive table where everybody belongs. It was just and generous. When you read the stories of how the early Jesus movement began and how they cared for one another, how they took care of each other's needs, how nobody went hungry, how everybody had their needs met. And they considered this evidence that the the risen Christ was among them, is that they were still doing the things he taught them to do within his life. It was a just and generous. Can you imagine if generous described the Christian movement today? Not just generous with condemnation, because we're pretty good at that, but generous with compassion, generous with resources. It was compassionate and healing. 
we're going to talk in a few weeks about the, the healing ministry of Jesus. And there are lots of great questions we could ask about how literal that is, how non-literal, but historically Jesus was known as a healer, right? That people said that about him, however that worked. It was healing, not wounding. My goodness, how has the movement that began in his name wounded people? How has it harmed people? When people came looking for a place of compassion and healing because that's what they saw in the stories of Jesus and instead were met with judgment and wounding. Jesus' movement was about liberation and resistance. It was about liberating his people. It was about resisting the empire. And I think we've read that out of the Jesus story, but I think it's very much what his movement was about. And ultimately it was practical and challenging. Anybody ever read the stories in the gospels where some rich person comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, just give all your stuff away. And he walks away and we're all like, how dare he? If that had been me, I'd have given all my stuff away. Have you? It's in there. (laughs) It's in there, right? It's in there. Give all your stuff away. And we want to be a little judgy about that. I think, the, I think it's supposed to be challenging. Jesus, again, says the way is narrow. Not narrow-minded, but narrow in the sense that this path is hard to walk. Loving your enemies will never be easy. Loving your neighbor sometimes is not easy. That's how you get enemies. They once were neighbors, right? It's never going to be easy. Caring about the pain and suffering of the world will never be easy. And yet it's what we're invited to, this kingdom that was about actual peace on earth, actual daily bread, actual debts forgiven. It was about the equitable distribution of God's resources so that all of God's kids would have their needs met. It was about liberation and compassion and transformation. And yes, this movement was centered on folks who had been oppressed, excluded, and marginalized. They were centered in this movement. And yes, Jesus did call for the wealthy again and again and again to give their stuff away to help people who were oppressed, marginalized, and forgotten. Have you ever wondered why? Like, does Jesus just not like the fact that people have stuff? Here's what I think we have to say. If you are extremely wealthy in Jesus' world, and I'm gonna let you, we can make whatever connections we wanna make to the modern world with this, but if you're extremely wealthy in Jesus' world, that probably meant, like if you're a tax collector, your wealth was built on taking advantage of your neighbors. If you owned a big, massive farming operation, that meant that you had gone into business dealings that had foreclosed on people's family land and pushed them off their land, and now they were probably working for you and barely getting enough money to get by. So in Jesus' world, the people who had all the wealth they probably didn't necessarily come by it in the most equitable, just, and honest ways. And what Jesus is essentially saying is, if, if we want this kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, then we have to begin to repair the damage we've done to earth. And if we want the kingdom of God to come in its fullness, then we need to make sure our neighbors are eating and they're not eating because you have overtaxed them and they're not eating because you took their land that was sustaining their family. And now we need you to give it back because reparations are biblical. And this is what Jesus is calling for in this movement. Not Rome light, not empire with Jesus on top, 
but a different way of ordering the world that actually cared about neighbor and enemy and cared about how people were making it in the world. Right, it's, it's, anybody ever, when anybody ever asks you how you're doing, you actually tell them? <laughs> and then their eyes get really big and they're like, it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I wasn't actually wondering. I just wanted you to say fine so we can move on. It, it, it's a world where the, that question, the answer to that question matters. In a world where we need to figure out how to make sure that the answer to that question is, I have enough. I have enough. How did Jesus do this? And we're gonna, this is where we're gonna go over the next several weeks after next week. He did it through teaching. He told parables, which are some of our favorite things. He's spoken these short phrases called aphorisms, which are these brilliant little sayings that he would have that would stick with people. Um, we'll talk about some of those. He did it through healings and exorcisms. That's gonna be so much fun. He did it through these prophetic actions. So he, he marches into Jerusalem in a, a, a lampoon parade on Palm Sunday. He goes into the temple on Monday and he does this prophetic action. He wasn't cleansing the temple. It was a prophetic demonstration, making a statement about the temple and what was going on there. And so he does these sorts of things. It wasn't a temper tantrum. It was planned carefully, thoughtfully. And then he did it through meals. And that's where I want to wrap up with today. I want to focus on this first because I think this is, if you want a picture of what Jesus was up to and how the kingdom worked, you have to talk about how Jesus ate. And for lots of us, for me, there was a point in time where I thought, I thought there was only one supper and it was the last one. You know, where they walk into the room and they're like, hey, we need a table for 26. There's only 13 of you. We're all going to sit on the same side for the picture. And they're all back there, you know, and they're just kind of have their thing going on. The idea of a Last Supper, I'm so glad you like that. <laughs> really am. You just gave something back. Um, the idea of a Last Supper implies other suppers, right? Other meals. And I think there's actually a clue to that in what Jesus says at the Last Supper. When he takes bread and he takes wine and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. We have always read that and it's a valid reading to say, Jesus is saying, this is my body. This is my blood. But what if he's making another statement too? What if he's saying, we've, we've been going over to this place and separating body from blood and calling it sacrifice as if this is what God wants. Throughout his ministry, he quotes the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What if Jesus is saying, the sacrifice God is looking for, my body and my blood, are when we sit at this table and everybody has enough and there's bread and wine for all and everybody leaves nourished and feeling like they got their belly full. My sacrifice is this table thing we do together. I think it's a valid reading. And by the way, this is another distinction between Jesus and John the baptizer. Notice what Jesus says about it himself in Matthew 11. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. I mean, if you notice in the gospels, John ate like locusts and honey. That's about it. He, he fasted a lot. His disciples fasted a lot. And then Jesus says about himself, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's making this distinction. John's ministry was grounded in fasting. Why do you fast? You fast to prepare, right? When people fast in the season of Lent, what are they preparing for? Easter. When you, when you fast 
For anything, it's in preparation. You know that thing when your doctor says, hey, you're coming in for blood work, I need you to fast, and then they give you a 4 p.m. appointment. Because they don't like you very much. Right? You're fasting in preparation to get your blood drawn. Fasting is about preparing. That was John's method. Jesus' method was about feasting. And what is feasting about? Feasting is about celebrating what has already happened. Feasting is about celebrating the, the thing that you have been longing for is here, it's now, it's available, we can participate in it, we can experience it right now in this moment. Amen. When they ask the winner of the Super Bowl, where are you going next? They don't say, we're, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go practice. See, we're going to Disney World because you celebrate when the thing has arrived. And that's what Jesus' meals were about. They were celebrations of the kingdom of God and what it's like right now. And so a few things about that. One, Jesus practiced open commensality. The word commensality is this word that essentially means in the ancient world, how you ate was a microcosm of how society functioned in the macrocosm. So if, for example, if women were subservient to men, men would never eat at a table with women. If the rich were, um, you know, if the power, if the uh, poor and the enslaved were below the rich in the society, the rich would never sit with the enslaved or the poor at a table. Does that make sense? You ate with people who were like you in the broader society. It's essentially how we organize middle school and high school lunchrooms, right? Where you walk in, I'll never forget walking in on the first day of high school and being, being so completely nervous about where I sat because there had already had, people had already staked out their corner, right? This is where the, the jocks were and I played baseball, but I wasn't like, football was the big thing and they were all way bigger than me and they scared me. Um, and you know, there were the kids who were really academically gifted and that sure wasn't me. And there were the musicians over here. And I just, I just felt like in that first day of high school, I'll never forget it. I just felt like I had nowhere to belong. Anybody ever been there before? Um, where you just feel like, I don't know where I fit because everybody has their spot. In the ancient world, you knew pretty quick where you ranked because of what you got invited to and where you sat when you were invited to the table, with whom you sat at the table. And so Jesus' way of eating broke all the societal rules because we have Jesus preparing tables where, where men and women are seated together and the rich and the poor and the enslaved and those who had conditions that had left them outside the bounds of society, people who had what often gets called leprosy, but it, it probably just means some sort of skin condition that made them ritually impure and thus made them outside the bounds of acceptability. Jesus brings all of these people in to a table. It's egalitarian. They're all equal at this table. It's equitable at this table. We eat the same food. We drink the same drink. Oh, yeah. That's right. I remember one time somebody invited me to a party and they were like, hey, bring, bring a bottle of wine to the party. I was like, I don't know anything about wine, but there's this bottle that's $2.99 at Kroger that I really like. And so I took it and people drank my 299 wine and there was way better wine at the party. Jesus is like, bring what you have, which, which is significant. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians gets so cranked up at this church when the rich are coming to the meal early, eating the best food, drinking all the good wine, getting drunk. And when the poor and enslaved and oppressed come, there's nothing left for them because the point isn't, the point isn't even really, eat, it's not eating, it's eating together. 
I heard on NPR once that we eat like almost half of our meals, people, we eat like half of our meals alone. And I just got to tell you, when I'm cruising down the road eating a, a Whopper in my car by myself, I'm not living my life. That is not, I'm not like, this is the kingdom of God. Hold the mayo. Like, it's, it's not how the thing ultimately is intended to work. And I think the reason, this is why Jesus pulls together such a diverse group of people, because the empire is affecting them all. And if we're going to resist this in any meaningful way, then we have to resist it together. This is why Paul's so imp- bringing Gentiles into this thing, because it's not just affecting us, it's affecting all of us. What if we all work together to bring about a different world? across religious and cultural boundaries? What if we worked together to do something radical to shift the way the world works? To wrap up, I want to go back to the text we looked at first from Mark. I want to look at it in a different translation. This is the Common English Bible. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust the good news. That, that really is what repent and believe mean. And I know repent is kind of a word that can make us squirrely because of all the places we see it and all the negative connotations. It's an invitation to change your mind. Change how you're thinking about this and believe it's possible. Can I just be honest? I, I'm, I struggle sometimes because I, I see what's possible, but then I look at the world that we're actually confronted with and it feels impossible. Anybody else? Anybody feel like, and, and, and there's only a certain group of you that are going to get this, but anybody feel like you're, you're sort of trapped in a music video with Paula Abdul and a cartoon cat? <laughs> and it's like, we know who's in their late 30s to early 40s. Congratulations. <laughs> right? It's, it's this idea, two, like three steps forward, two steps back. Like we, we make a move toward equality in our society, and then there are people trying to rip it away. We make a move toward justice, and there are people trying to rip it away. We... We acknowledge somebody who gave so much to our country in the fight for justice and name a street after them, and then some people start trying to take part of it away. Anybody else just feel so like you so overwhelmed and you're looking at all the fires that need to be put out, and we're not even talking about rebuilding, we're talking about just putting out the fires, and you're just like, what can I do? I feel so insignificant. I feel so unequipped. I feel so frustrated and tired. Anybody else? Just feel frustrated and tired. I woke up, I, I think it was on Friday this week, maybe. I can't remember. Um, it's been a, I don't remember days anymore. That's a thing. And um, I saw that a group of people had taken a flag with the state of Tennessee on it and a Nazi symbol and draped it over the Cumberland River, thanking the governor for his policies that are affecting members of the LGBTQ plus community and encouraging the governor to make sure that this state is a safe place for white kids. I look at that and I think, my God, it just feels impossible. And I'm pretty sure somebody's gonna watch this online and say I'm being partisan. And like, look, I just wish like condemning Nazism wasn't a partisan issue anymore. Um, I think that may be the problem. And I'm reminded of Jesus again and again. I mean, faced with Roman oppression, faced with the shadow of a Roman cross over his life continually. And he walks around telling stories about mustard seeds. 
and how the kingdom's like this. And y'all just, we never, we never got it. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom is like bringing in a full-grown sycamore tree or redwood and planting it. Because for Jesus, the kingdom is a process because empire can be imposed. You get more weapons than somebody else. Your empire is better organized than somebody else's. You take over, you're the new empire. The kingdom of God cannot be imposed. It has to be led into the human heart because love can't control. And Jesus says, it's, just, it's, it's, it's planting these seeds. It's a process. I, I cannot rid the world of Nazism. I would have done it Friday if I had somehow had the opportunity, the knowledge. How do I just talk to people and convince them? It's a slow process. It's inviting people to realize that there is, there is a real better, there's a better way to be human than hate. There is a better way to be human than persecuting people for simply being who they are and who God made them to be. There are way, way more dangerous things. And on the list of dangerous things, drag queens aren't on it. But Nazis are. And that if we somehow found a way to, and this is why I think Jesus says, believe, but it really does mean trust. Trust that the work we do in this room on a Sunday, in our own lives, in our homes, in coffee shops, as we engage, as we, as we seek to live a more just and generous expression of the Jesus story, I really think those things do matter. And I do think those little tiny mustard seeds that get planted over time actually do begin to grow. I've experienced it before. There are people who literally got an Instagram message from somebody last year. Never would have believed in my life. I, I Actually, when I saw the name, I thought, oh, I'm about to get it. And he just says in this message, look, I've been going through a lot of changes. My eyes have been open to a lot of things. And I think how I've believed and then how I've lived has hurt a lot of people. And I don't think I want to do that anymore. Can we talk? It happens. It happens. It, it doesn't happen by dehumanizing them. It does happen by, dehumanize, by humanizing the people they're trying to dehumanize. It does happen by standing up for justice. I, I have given up the idea that being Christian means you have to be polite all the time. I do believe it means you have to be kind. But it is not kind to abide in justice. It is not kind to be silent when people are being victimized. And so here's what I'm committing to. Because no matter how hard I've tried over the years, I, I feel stuck with Jesus, or maybe he's stuck with me. But I have this sense of I'm a lifer in this thing. I'm going to follow Jesus or try to to my very last breath because this is my tradition. This is my mother tongue. This is the vision of the world that makes sense for me. Amen. But I am, I am not stubborn and I will work with anybody. And so my goal here is not to Christianize the world. My hope is that Christians like us will work with Buddhists who share similarities with us and Jewish folks who are similar to us and Hindu folks and Muslim folks who, are, who share this vision for what the world could be because it's in every tradition. It's across the board. And that we could begin to work together to, to, to repent. And repent simply means to change your heart and then to trust that this world could be different. 
This world could be different. I, some days, I, I'll be honest, some days I say it hoping to believe it. And some days, in the depths of my bones, I believe it and I am ready to get to work. This world could be different. The kingdom doesn't run over, it creeps. It's a process, person to person, structure to structure, community to community, where people begin to open their eyes, change their heart and live and trust that the world could be different. Are you with me? Yes. Let's be that community, Grace Point. Shall we? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, this vision of Jesus is bold and it's larger than we can even at times get our brains or hearts around. And we acknowledge, I acknowledge that there are days when it just feels so overwhelming and so impossible. And I would imagine that Jesus himself has felt those things. And yet he continued his work to bring awareness that the thing the world has waited for and longed for is already here. It just it takes awareness. It, it takes us opening our eyes and our hearts, thinking differently and trusting that God with us, we can make this world different. Trusting that God is not somewhere else angry with us, but God is right here with us that God is for us and that God is ultimately on the side of human flourishing. And that when we choose to cooperate with God, this world could be transformed. For that, we are grateful. We offer this in Jesus' name, amen.